Welcome to the pod, everyone. A shout out to SGS. Hey, Rusty, why are we uh, partnering with SGS? Uh, uh, some, some, some good people there. Pretty excited about their sports coaching courses and sports courses. Keen to make them industry ready so when people leave, they're able to go and transfer it to any kind of industries, coaching, teaching, being an analyst, business, whatever it might be. So I think, uh, yeah, I think it's pretty exciting times, really. So what's so special about their degree courses that others wouldn't be doing? I think it'll be lots of uh, real good partnerships, uh, opportunities for people to, to get into different contexts and learn and practice. It'll be feel very applied. People will be stretched and supported and will leave yeah, ready to just go and thrive in the uh, big old world out there. SGS College is the home of Bristol's higher education sports programmes. The programmes are designed to develop unique, innovative and creative sports practitioners ready for industry. Do you want to be a coach or teacher of the future? Start your journey here at SGS College and become more than just a graduate. Visit sgscol.ac.uk to apply now. Uh, Rusty, live on the pod with Kath Bishop. We have just compared our uh, our bookshelves, although you have all your books on the floor, so <laughs> which is an interesting way of uh, of organising them. Uh, how are you, Kath? You well? I'm really well. The floor is the overflow because the shelves are full. So yeah, we're we're awaiting further storage solutions. Nice, nice. And so look, it's um, it's it's great to have you on the pod, and uh, a big shout out to Henry Weeks for connecting us. And we've just we've probably just done half an hour of chewing the fat anyway, so I'm ex- I wish we'd recorded that. Um, do you want to kind of give a quick kind of history of, of what brought you to this point? Um, sure, yeah. I mean, we, we had lots of uh, connections there in different parts of our lives, but um, I was an Olympic rower for 10 years. I actually started rowing at Cambridge University, where we had some, some connections and stories there, and uh, went on a real journey through three Olympic Games at a point where uh, initially there was no lottery funding, women's sport wasn't a priority, then that shifted a bit, then it took a while for culture to change, um, and then at the end, you know, I saw a different way, the glimmer of a different way of um, setting up how we think about winning and, and success in sport, which is still a big, massive topic. Um, I then went into the diplomatic service and, um, and worked uh, as a diplomat working on conflict issues around the world for just over a decade. And I've been working now in leadership development the last seven years um, in business, also a little bit in sports, still massively interested in how we get the cultures right to, to support the things that matter, the values, the people first, and have just written a book that came out in October, The Long Win, which is pulling together my thoughts across education, business, sport and politics about the need to redefine what winning means. Well, that was a great summary. And I wondered uh, how much of your diplomatic skills you needed during lockdown with a seven and nine year old. Yeah, I mean, gosh, negotiations were tough when I was sort of working in post-conflict Bosnia and and Iraq. But I tell you, you know, I, I needed I needed every bit of the, that experience, which probably still wasn't enough. Lockdown homeschooling was tough for all of us, wasn't it? Because it was a really different 
context than we'd had before. And, and that is for me always interesting. How do you transfer skills from one sphere to another? And I've often found there are elements of my sporting resilience that were helpful to me when I became a diplomat working in conflict zones, but there were also things that were really different. And then actually, again, when I became a parent, there were things that were useful. And then there were things that were totally, you know, new. I mean, I've never been deprived of sleep before I became a parent. And that was a whole new challenge to my resilience. So I'm fascinated by actually how we have to stop and think, you know, what, what can I bring with me? And actually, what do I need new? And how am I going to get that? And who's going to help me? Nice. I was thinking, and, and let's go back to Cambridge and remember those glory days. Uh, what got you into rowing? So what was the reason you started rowing? Did you row before uni or just so I, quite tall? I don't know. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't start rowing before uni and I was actually very non-sporty at school. I had not great experiences of school sport. I was tall, a little bit uncoordinated and was absolutely dubbed, you're not a sporty person. These small, fast people are because they can run rings around you. So I felt very kind of categorized that, that sport wasn't really, you know, accessible, wasn't really available to me, even though I, I wanted that. Um, it looked fun. It looked kind of like something that, that would be good. I loved watching the Olympics on TV, but it just felt, you know, as far away as a Hollywood film might. Um, and then when I got to Cambridge, I actually didn't sign up initially to row because I thought I'm not very sporty. That looks really full on and uh, involves getting up early, which kind of wasn't in my plan either. And so I initially didn't, but halfway through my first term, um, quite a few people who were becoming really good friends were all doing this crazy novice rowing thing, getting up ridiculously early and loving it and buzzing and chatting about it all day. And um, they came to me sort of, you know, midway through that term and just said, look, you know, we've, we've got, we need some help and you know somebody's got injured we need an eighth person we know you don't want to do it but you know come on we'll go down to the student bar and we're going to persuade you to do it you know give it a try what have you got to lose and um you know eventually I sort of gave in because actually I I really wanted to see what that experience was like and the camaraderie they had I was quite envious of that and so I had a really you know lovely introductory to a completely different sport than anything I'd experienced at school being on the river being outside these beautiful early mornings once you get over the pain of the alarm clock the mist over the river and the fact that actually once you're in a boat uh you're really part of that team you can't opt out of when I'd been on a hockey field I'd sort of stood to one side I'd felt awkward I'd felt I can't really join in I don't know how to I'm going to make a mistake when you get in a rowing boat you can't stop you've got to keep going you've got to do your best job whilst trying to fit in with people around you and that gave me the permission almost the freedom to to opt in and give it a go and that was just such a liberating experience so I had a wonderful introduction to the sport with absolutely zero aspirations to become an elite athlete which again I'm so grateful for because it just gave me a, a love of being on the river which was one of the most helpful things when things suddenly got really different and tense and high pressured you know 10 years or so after that. I was just thinking there, like, really easy for coaches to categorise kids. I mean, we can all do that. It's really easy to do. It's not that helpful, in my opinion. I think uh, I was reminded of what you said, you know, what, what you hope to get out of that. Uh, and then uh, did you have a coach? So when you first started, or was it quite a social uh, group? And you kind of worked uh, so yeah, when I started, we had older students coaching us and there was like a, a kind of a, a coach slash boatman, if you like, for, for, for the college I was at. So he was, you know, looking out for who, who are the, the kind of next tall, tall people to, you know, who might move an oar well. And, you know, it was a wonderfully supportive environment. So, again, there were some people who'd rode at school who 
also brought kind of more experience to, to the college. And so there was lots of people just really encouraging and just really making it fun and just helping kind of explain the, the endless intricacies of how you put an ore in the water very precisely and extract it very precisely and the timing and all of that. I kind of just loved learning about all that was involved technically as well as getting fitter. So, you know, I, I had a really lovely opportunity to, to also move up a rung at a time. So to get into a better college boat and then the sort of top summer boat, then to do, actually stayed in, in the first summer and did like a development squad with the university and then move into like the, you know, the, the boat race cruise. So for me, there was also this lovely thing of always having the next level open and available and why don't you try it and this will help you move on again without ever seeing what was at the end of those rungs not thinking will I you know no no those sort of concept that I was on the way to being an Olympic athlete it wasn't even part of my thinking until probably right at the end of university with with coaches starting to to, to say it might be a possibility and, and again that was so lovely just go the next step see if you can take it uh, see if it works see if you can learn from people who are slightly better from you so lots of things that made it kind of easy to to enjoy and yet also keep improving nice I think I said to you earlier like my experiences at uni were exactly the same I actually really struggled with professional sport um, whatever professional means maybe it just means we have more kit um, and it, it never gave me that what you're talking about the kind of camaraderie the a highly supportive environment um, that kind of almost chasing mastery would probably be something I would be thinking a lot about. We were always thinking about how we get better. It was very individualized versus I probably experienced the opposite of that, quite frankly, when I played professional sport. I mean, what were the, how would you reflect on the difference in that experience? And then I guess your, I'm going to clump it all into one, but your kind of your international rowing stuff. Yeah, so when I definitely when I first went into the Olympic team, it was complete change. All of those things disappeared. And it was almost like right now you're going to learn how to be a serious athlete because you weren't a serious athlete before. You were having fun. You were, you know, you were enjoying yourself. And that's not what winners do. They graft. They go for pain and sacrifice. Do you know if you lose, you've got to be miserable as hell because winners don't like losing. There was all of this mantra. And I thought, oh my God, this is really different wow I don't know how to do this oh my god I'm gonna have to learn this so now I regret it I was like right this is you know this is what do I know these people are been to an Olympics they might have coached somebody with Olympic gold medal so they know everything and I know nothing so this is what I've got to to take on board and I, and I tried harder than you know harder than you know ever to take on this mentality and and all it did was stop me improving kept me very stuck this world where you were trying to be tough there was nobody tougher than me but that didn't actually help me win any medals at all um that's not actually what the medals are given out for um and so you know definitely in that early period i was bombarded by this very macho narrative in the british team around who's the toughest do you have the will to win that was held over us because particularly over the women's team who hadn't won medals to that point because obviously we didn't have the will to win and so again, I can remember agonizing in my mind about, oh, do, have, I got, have I got that? Oh, I don't know if I've got it. How do I find out if I've got it? What if I haven't got it? What if somebody has it more than me? How would I know? I mean, what a waste of time because meanwhile, I'm not doing anything to learn how to make a boat go faster. So, you know, I really regret kind of wasting time and, and buying into that narrative. I mean, I knew no different. I was so naive going into it. 
And actually what I relied on, what, what kept me going were the things I'd learned at university, the really good technical foundation I'd had that had gone through, yeah, absolutely that mastery mindset of focusing and making one stroke better than the next. The focus on rhythm, the focus on feeling the boat, that had been something I loved about the sport. That's the joy of it. That's actually the elusive kind of X factor into boat speed. It's not just being a brute and bullying it along. There comes a point where that's not good enough anymore because everybody's strong. So it's your technique, it's your finesse, it's your balance, it's your rhythm that's gonna get the extra boat speed on top of the power that you've got. And I was, you know, I was relying on that, but I wasn't gaining any more of that. So again, I mean, if anything, my progress kind of slowed. It, it moved on physically physiologically it moved on I was breaking a British record a world record on the rowing machine but it wasn't translating into a championship performance because there was a huge absence of thinking about the finesse the rhythm you know the joy of rowing uh, the techniques in in greater detail and also just you know a, a more sophisticated approach to mindset and connecting with people in a much more human way oh you've set up so many fireworks in my head unfortunately it triggered me actually one of my very in my first couple of weeks at uh, Bath, a, a British Lion player told the owner, um, "If you give me a bigger win bonus, I'll play better." And I just couldn't compute it. I was like, "Hang on, this time, like," and and I guess that's you know eventually you get indoctrinated in that world. So so it led to three questions. We can choose which one we look at first. So who did you speak to about this? And and did you ever kind of put your your head above the parapet? I'm really curious about the the kind of in sync stuff. So something I often say, and I, I might be making this it up, the four quickest people on the ergo don't make the quickest boat because actually it's about connection. And as you said, it's about rhythm and connecting with someone who's got their back to you. Sorry, I love the way you're writing down the questions. And the third question was, well, well where did psych fit in? Because you mentioned, you know, you talk, you've used the word mindset and you've used the word about connecting with people and so where do you think that fitted in into people's planning around you know what they were going to the, the stuff they were going to impose upon you so well that's a load of questions great questions right. and uh no i know i love them all um the psych stuff was what then helped me to get out of that hole um, there was very little sports psychology available in, uh, certainly not really in the lead up to Atlanta. And then we had a coach who wasn't interested in sports science in general in the lead up to Sydney. Um, and so there wasn't a lot of opportunity. I, I started to, um, we did have a sports psych we could go to. You kind of almost had to hide that you were going to them uh, in that second Olympiad. And I started to explore a little bit, but I didn't really have the opportunity to sort of put that into practice if you like within training and where that train where that changed was was in the third olympiad i mean essentially i went to atlanta and came seventh and then you know went through four brutal years of training you know to be as tough as anyone can be uh, and, and came ninth in sydney and and that was a massive crisis after going through four years of that pain and sacrifice and all of the stuff i'd been told i needed to go through you know i went slower it's like, great, what did we prove there? I mean, that was, you know, an absolute disaster. And, and all of this stuff I hadn't really wanted to buy into, you know, but there was no other way when I spoke up. It was kind of like, look, this is what people do who win. Do you want to win? Therefore, you have to do it. Um, and, and that really shut things down. And, and any questions I had, it would be, well, how many Olympic medals have you got? 
right, well, who are you to ask a question? So really silenced, which I found extraordinarily difficult and, and demotivating. Um, and then sort of after Sydney, you know, that, that sort of absolute crisis, I was like, well, look, I, I really need to get my head around what, what went on there because that clearly didn't work for me. And, you know, is there another way or do I kind of walk away and, and just go, do you know what, I, I did what I could. And it was in the process of then talking to coaches from different sports, um, athletes, you know, that I'd met through the Olympics sort of over time, um, having conversations with different people, some track and field coaches, um, coming across some, some amazing characters. Daley Thompson was someone I'd, I'd come across a few years earlier and, you know, someone who is, who is uh, you know, really kind and, and open to sort of trying to see the world through my eyes. And, he, you know, he'd said before, you know, you guys train like absolute maniacs, you know, you, you're taking it too seriously. And I thought, how's that possible? How does anyone take it too seriously? What a ridiculous thing to say. And then, of course, you know, I started to realise that, yeah, we had got things totally out of perspective. And, and actually, you know, he, he's one of the sort of legendary athletes, isn't he, of all time. And, and what did he do? He, he enjoyed what he was doing under the greatest of pressures. You know, he smiled before going in to, to take his third disco th discus throw after two no throws, you know, in the Olympic final. I mean, you know, that he's the epitome of, of enjoying your sport under pressure and thriving and performing. So, you know, I spoke to a lot of different people and, and, and also there was a shift in thinking around culture that was starting to come in, that actually maybe uh, there was a different way to approach things. And at that point, the sort of performance thinking also started coming into play, both through the sports psych and the coaches as well, where they focus on performance rather than results. So separating out those concepts, we can't control the results because they depend on how fast the rest of the world go, whether we're fit and healthy whether there's a global pandemic that gets in the way of an Olympics or not, whether you're, you know, there are umpires and referees in, involved in, in, in your results. What you're responsible for is your best performance and developing that on a daily basis. So it's not, it's also not just how fast are you going and how, where are you in the rankings on the daily basis, which is what had been the case in the previous Olympiad. It was actually about what improvements are you making day to day? Because you might actually go slower whilst you're making a technical change in order to go faster in three months time. We were never allowed to do that in the previous system because you had to prove yourself every day. You were ranked every day. And if you were slipping down the rankings, the pressure came on to try harder and get back up there. So we kind of burnt ourselves out really competing against each other. And, and, and there was, you know, there was no ability to sort of move on when it then came to, to face the rest of the world at the end of it. And this performance thinking now enabled us to start thinking differently and, and improving a whole lot of aspects that might not immediately translate into boat speed, but meant you were exploring every possibility of over time developing that peak performance and also seeing communication as part of that and relationships and mindset. So again, taking on board things that are part of a peak performance in three or four years time, you could get away with not doing it today, but there's no way you'll develop your potential as an athlete if you don't incorporate these things into you know what you're what you're looking at and focusing on each day what you, what one piece of advice do you wish the uh, you could give those coaches back uh, back then now i mean freeing up from this macho narrative uh, and ensuring that you know we really allow everyone to really enjoy enjoy what they're doing not be afraid of that and and to actually explore those positive motivations 
while you're doing it rather than play on the the fear-based motivation system you know enable people you know and and i think that's a kind of something that's still a challenge in in a lot of sporting environments there's a sense that that's that makes you tough and that and toughness gets still mixed up with high performance so it would be to bring compassion into that environment to care about your athletes uh, and therefore enable them to thrive and explore their best potential nice i um yeah that would that would fuel all my biases so i appreciate you you saying that uh fascinating what and, and i guess it's also so you spoke a bit about kind of timelines of thinking as well um i'm curious like what you, i was going to ask the question of what were the unintended consequences of some of those environments but I, i'm going to flip it and actually talk about what do you think the long-term benefits are of hopefully the shift that you've seen you spoke about you've seen some uh, some kind of glimmers of a different way of doing things what have you seen as the the longer term so as and when so it's something that's interesting to me i speak to lots of ex-players across lots of sports my best mate works at the rpa i see that people have struggled actually after their time in sport and well no one cares for them that much at that point anyway but what's been the, the longer term benefits you've noticed as well yeah i mean it's it's making sure you're getting something out of it beyond medals beyond any uh sort of external trophy that's frankly just a piece of metal and the moment winning it is a second in time. Uh, so that's not going to last. You're not going to win for more than a second, basically. So you need to understand what winning means for life thereafter. What do you take from that moment that lasts? And what do you take from, in fact, all the moments leading up to it? When I went back, I had a year off in that third Olympiad and went back to, to try for Athens. I went back with a very different mindset thinking um, this time, I could come ninth again. I, you know, had purely before been, you know, you've got to win, got to win. And this time I thought, you know what, you've got to go back with a really different approach and accept that, you know what, some really good people are going to come ninth because you came ninth once and you were utterly committed, utterly devoted, could not have worked harder, had great physiological potential and you came ninth. So let's not demonize that. Let's accept that some really great committed people will come ninth and 10th and 11th and 12th because there were 12 places that qualified for the Olympics in, in that event. Um, and so that kind of released me a bit from the demons, this sort of stigmatizing of, of that to go, do you know what, that could happen. So you need to decide what else are you going to get out of this? So if you come ninth again, this time you're going to get something else out of it too. What are those things you're going to gain beyond the result? And I thought long and hard before I really committed to going back about what that would be, about the things that I could learn there that I could take into the career that I would have after sport. I'd actually already started in that year off, I joined the Foreign Office, which is something I'd always wanted to do and was connected to kind of what I'd studied earlier. Um, and so I had a sense of, I know I've got a career now that will carry on after sport. So what are the things I can learn from this next two years that are going to help me there about managing pressure, about building meaningful relationships, about understanding the, you know, the, the, the why, why are you doing this? Why is this important about how you can develop your mindset to allow you to perform under, you know, the greatest of challenges about how you're going to meet those, you know, adverse uh, the, the adversity that, that's going to surely occur in the next couple of years. And, and that was so powerful to uh, every day feeling, you know, successful and meaningful, if you like, and, I, and, and taking pressure off 
the win that enabled me to perform then much higher than I'd ever performed before. So, you know, for me, that was something that was really, really, um, you know, a, a totally different experience as well. I was able to enjoy each day because I could take something from it and not panic if I was at the bottom of the rankings or I had a bad day and didn't go so fast, which then enabled me, of course, to kind of dig into that resource to, to keep improving and, and find a way back and, and improve the performance as well. So none of it was about lowering performance. It was actually about setting the environment for me to improve my performance, but without pressuring on results, 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 thinking about what else is this about? And of course, those things are then what make your moment on the podium, if it comes, much more meaningful because you've got things to take away that that medal represents things that last in a way that a piece of metal doesn't. Um, so for me, you know, the, the asking of always every person that I work with, coach or athlete, I ask, what is it that you're going to gain if you don't get to compete at the Olympics? And of course, this year, suddenly, that is a more pertinent, powerful question than ever before. And the people who had an answer to that, those are the athletes that have coped well this year. And the ones that didn't have an, have an answer to that are the ones whose lives fell apart, who totally lost the motivation to keep training or to kind of just, you know, really keep going. Um, it's so important and it's helpful to performance. Hey, will you tell everyone what you're up to at Core 37? Hi, Fletch. We're a teamwear brand based in the Northeast, and we're the sister company of Oddballs. We've got the largest sports sublimation factory in the UK and we've produced for the biggest brands in Europe over the past seven years. But with Core 37, our in house brand, you can now access those prices direct to the customer. Why would people use Core 37? Uh, if I was to pick three, Fletch, it would be our lead time of three to four weeks, our price, which is lower than anybody else in the industry, and the fact that we're made here in the UK. What's the stuff you're most proud of with Core 37? Uh, there's loads of stuff, but the, the key one for me would be working for a company that, that genuinely believes in its own mission statement, which is to produce performance sportswear at an affordable price. And then underpinning that is the people. Everybody who works here is involved in grassroots sport in some way. And so we genuinely care about what we're doing here. Fletch, why do you want to partner with Core 37? Uh, apart from the fact you're a Geordie, uh, great people, uh, lots of people involved in sport, really affordable and top quality. Thanks for joining us, Wilkie. Anyone who wants to find out more can go and have a play on their website at core-37.com or they can reach out directly to tom at core-37.com. Yeah, I mean, you just got me thinking about the kind of Sunday morning dads who are, their world's falling apart because there's no contact rugby and the kids can't play matches and there isn't a winner. And, 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 and it begs the question, like, what is rugby? And rugby still exists even, you know, when we're playing touch games or, or even during lockdown when we're not playing it. And it's, I guess it's bigger than that. I was curious, isn't your last cycle, did you, were your coaches and the people around you aware of this shift in your mind? And did you explain this stuff to them? Because I was thinking earlier on about it doesn't sound that much like the first two cycles the stuff you were doing was that co-created or that, you know, cooperative between you and coach. I'll take the shaking head as a no. And was it different in the third cycle? So it sounds like you were different, but was there a different coaching experience, different relationship, different kind of, uh, kind of soft contract going on? So it was different, but it wasn't the full package. It was a little different. I would say the sports psych made a massive difference. And, you know, again, he was the one who was supporting me in that conversation of what else are you going to get? You know, 
you could come ninth, that's okay, because someone is going to come ninth. Now, what are all the things you can do that will give you the best chance possible of coming first? Um, but, you know, actually, what else will you take regardless of that? And I think, you know, definitely we had different coaching approach and much more of a focus on the performance piece. So we're not just saying you've had a good day because you're top of the rankings or bottom of the rankings. The coaching was much more about these are the things you're improving. This is what you've got to move on next. So much more that mastery approach. So those things were there. But were we at a stage of co-creation? No. Were we at a stage of, uh, you know, really kind of thinking about the sort of values, the, you know, the, the identity we're bringing? No. You know, I, I had this other life that I'd created outside of sport as well. Um, that was a massive lifeline to me because actually when I first came back in having you know joined the foreign office got this other job and then coming back lots of people were thinking you know we don't want her back in the sport because she came ninth so she's a loser um, so actually you know she's not going back on funding she'll have to come in through the open trials all of which was a massive help to me because it meant I could a you know come through the process everyone comes through going through trials or well, that wasn't a problem um, and it also meant that I could keep working because I wasn't having to do what you do when you're funded and you've got no sort of agency to, to often to, to shape what how you spend your time. So I was also I knew by that point in the career what training was helpful. So I was able to avoid spending time on the stuff that wasn't so important for me. And, you know, I'm a, a tall athlete, one of the, the bigger athletes on the team. So doing doing lots of weights was, was doing nothing for my agility. That's where I needed to make progress. And actually the year I had out, I did loads of running. I did loads of fun stuff. I even went down the track and did some, some kind of sprint work that was absolutely brilliant for my fitness. So I came back in, you know, almost better shape, if you like. So I knew there was some stuff that was working for me. Um, so, you know, I was able to have that because very unusually I'd sort of stepped outside of the system, if you like, and was only slowly, slowly coming back in. So I was able to capitalize on that. But that wasn't available to, to other athletes who were just kind of doing what they were told and carrying on through the system. What do you think is preventing the coaches from thinking like this? So I think there's, oh, that's a great question, isn't it? There is a sort of ingrained culture about what's right. Uh, I guess there is a need to feel that you've got to control performance and therefore you need to control your athletes. And those two things don't need to be, in fact, it's unhelpful to link those two things. Actually, I always thought it was strange how, um, how much that environment was um, controlled for us and we were really sort of treated as, as pawns if you like when in the middle of a race who's going to make the decisions I've got to make them so why aren't you helping me to be making decisions within this environment I always thought that was a kind of odd paradox in in the way things were set up there's a need to I suppose make uh, you know feel that those athletes can perform on the day that matters so the more machine-like we are the less human the less variable um, you know, the better, because we can't afford to have a bad day on the Olympics. I remember hearing that a lot. You can't have an off day. You've got to win on an off day. You can't, you know, if you come one day and say you're not feeling that well and you can't quantify it, that, you know, that's really scary to a coach because, my God, you can't do that on the day of your Olympic final because then we won't know how to fix it. You know, fear of this sort of something being slightly vague or emotional. Oh, my God, we can't have that because we can't qualify those. We can't put those in a spreadsheet and get the physiologist to test for those 
So, you know, again, this, I suppose this, this need to sort of predict performance because that's what this whole environment is, you know, uh, going to be built on the results at the end of the day, rather than exploring, oh, how interesting. I wonder what is, what, what is triggering those emotions and how do those actually kind of fit in with the physiology side of it? And, you know, what an interesting way of, of understanding ourselves even better. No, there was, you know, that, that was definitely something that felt, you know, un unquantifiable and therefore you know we're, we're, if we can't measure it easily we're scared of that and I think a lot of culture both in business organizations as well as sport there's a sense if we can't easily stick it in a spreadsheet measure it on a quarterly basis shove those statistics in an upwards direction then we're not interested um, and unfortunately that involves all of the aspects that make us uniquely human and actually embracing those harnessing those is the key to ultimate high performance yeah i think when people talk about seriousness and performance they often talk include measuring some stuff because it's quite easy to measure um, one of the questions i'll often ask people is if you can measure three things you've never measured what would they be and they talk about the stuff you've just spoken about and of course you can find out about that stuff you might not measure it but you could definitely attend to people's confidence and how they're feeling and how can you support them with that and understand it better and I mean because yeah, ultimately we're, we're human beings so I was really intrigued well I'm intrigued about two things so I'm gonna go uh, being a diplomat what's the stuff mm. that kind of added on to this you know you know clearly you've been influenced by the sports stuff um Clearly, and we'll get to the book because I'm really excited about how you wrote the book as well. That's the second bit I'm really excited about. Um, so what was the stuff that you think, actually, the, there's some really useful experiences here and <clears throat> some stuff I've learned and, and this has been helpful for me as well. So the interesting thing in the diplomatic world was the importance of working in a team when we were negotiating. And a lot of the classic political work that I was doing that a diplomat typically does is negotiating documents either it's a, an eu directive or we won't be doing that much more or it's you know a peace agreement or it's you know reforming the security services in bosnia reforming the constitution or trying to persuade um iraqi parties polit politicians to take uh, part in peaceful elections so you're you're constantly negotiating persuading influencing and I was really interested in, I suppose, the psychology behind that. Firstly, of how we worked as a team to make sure that we would be each other's sort of eyes and ears and how we would often each hear something different. And that was a really powerful way of understanding what was happening in the room. So one person would typically be, you know, the on the microphone doing the talking and we'd have, you know, the British position and the things that we want to achieve. And the others in the team would be, kind of watching what's happening in the room at a deeper level, observing emotions, reactions, responses, and listening. And then often we'd have a break and we'd sort of do a check and we'd say, well, what, you know, what, what do you think's happening? And where do you think we can take things? Where are we seeing some glimmers of space to move the negotiation forward to get some progress? And often, again, we'd have heard different things. You say, well, I think the Germans, the Germans want this. And you go, oh, but they said this. Um, and it was amazing how even between four or five of us, we weren't sure what the Iraqis had said or what the Germans had said or, or what the Bosnians had said. You know, well, well, then imagine how much misunderstanding there is in the room because we all hear things slightly differently. So actually, a lot of our job as diplomats is to constantly go back and check 
what you've heard and what you've understood from what you've heard because actually that exists even when we're all speaking the same language when we're then speaking different languages and that's getting translated that's only amplified so a lot of our time was spent around this clarifying what do people really mean and you know where are they trying to get to and, and unpeeling that and so I found that fascinating both how we work to support and challenge each other but also this bigger process of how we can understand what others are, are really thinking about what what they aren't saying that that's also important so that real observation and powerful listening and the, the the sort of the theme that you know ties back into the the book and the topic of winning was that again a lot of what we would spend time on was thinking about mindsets and how people viewed success in the negotiation so your first thing is think about what does everybody want out of this because how the hell are we going to tie in all these opposing views if you like and where people had a sense of success for our side is the other side not getting what they wanted, that zero sum thinking, then we were always in trouble. Like you knew that when you've got that going on and it's a very powerful motivator when people, you know, it's a very powerful um, influence that's hard to get rid of when people have been, you know, a war with each other doing, you know, committing atrocities. It's very natural that you would think that way, but it is never gonna help you to move the topic on, to move the subject on, to get to some kind of way forward that's gonna help the country to move forward. So in a Bosnian context, each of the warring sides, of course, wanted the other side to come out badly still, but that was always really bad for Bosnia trying to move forward, trying to kind of pull its economy together, trying to find a way of, of functioning uh, effectively. And so our challenge would be, how can we move people from zero sum game thinking into a world where they see that they will gain if everyone gains? And probably, you know, every situation I was in, that was the biggest challenge and the most important one for us to make progress on. We would have reams of technical detail for whatever it is you're looking at, how the police operate or how, you know, how immigrants are, are, are kind of channeled through asylum application whatever it is there was a ream of technicality but the thing that was most important was this view of the outcome what are people bringing into the room we have to shift that into that cooperative thinking if you like where let's all create a much bigger pie where we, where we can all take something rather than there only be one winner that it just is never going to work um, so again that was a different lens on this topic of you know, winning and seeing it very much that sort of binary macho, who's the winner, who's the loser, and my success is defined by somebody else doing badly. That's not actually how the concept of winning started off in, in language when it, you know, actually going back to the, the etymology of, um, of the word to win or the word to compete. So the word to win comes from two words, gwin, which meant labour, effort, you know, striving and wunia that meant um, joy. So it comes from effort and joy is the original meanings. Nothing about defeating others or causing them pain. Competere, competition comes from the Latin for to strive together, not against each other, but together. These are the concepts that are most important to actually winning and competing. So we need to reframe that and make sure that's what we go in with, rather than this sort of battle military mindset of somehow, um, you know, success has to be about somebody losing, being defeated, being vanquished, being disempowered and, and uh, destroyed. Just a small thing to change then, yeah? 
Well, it is and it isn't. You yeah. know, we can do it because that's how we used to define it. But you're right. I mean, you could argue it's centuries of, you know, our history books being about battles and about who the powerful are. So, yeah, let's change the history books. And that's starting to happen, isn't it? Um, but too slowly. So, I mean, we do come back to education where we could really change our thinking about a lot of this. And some countries are doing that much more um, sort of progressively than, than probably happens in the UK. Yeah, we could. So a few more fireworks you've set off. One is like clarifying what people mean. <clears throat> I'm thinking about coaches and um, understanding where people are. And then actually the fascination of just understanding your context. So I used to do some coaching in Israel and the first week I thought everyone was having an argument and they were just speaking. Um, but it's quite an aggressive tone of language. And so I was, I was, I was confused. And I guess also like this understanding, well, thinking cooperatively about what winning means to you. So I've got two questions. One is what's winning to you at the moment? So what, what, what is winning for Kath? And then the other thing I was thinking about was, so let's say Kath goes into the Olympic program, the Olympic rowing program. What does the first week look like now? So you've gone in as a coach or a, you know, or head of fun or whatever job title you're given. What would your first week look like? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I would I would actually love to be uh, able to kind of, you know, influence more more directly our, uh, our environments. And, you know, uh, I would also be quite happy for performance to be still, you know, head of performance, but a reframed concept of performance. Um, you know, I, I would want people to be um, actually asked why you're here. Why are you doing this? Why do you want to spend six hours a day training to be an Olympic rower? Uh, you know, and, and really exploring that, you know, and, and, and constantly coming back to that, if you like, why else, you know, what, what are the motivations here, you know, the, the, the drivers that maybe I feel inadequate, I've got to prove myself, but also maybe a love for the sport, you know, what can we draw on, which ones are those fear based, which are those more positive ones, so, you know, I'd absolutely go back to the why for people, because that's going to be the most powerful resource to tap into when training gets tough, because it's going to get tough, I've got nothing against tough training at all but it's the framework within which we set that that I'd want to change so yeah I'd absolutely you know want to bring in conversations um, around how are we going to how are we going to manage the tough times you know that co-creation process this is the basic training program but how are we going to actually optimize this for you um, and again that that sort of sense of you know being part of how am I going to help you when it's tough? What do you want me to do? You know, and what are we going to do when we get to that point where, you, you know, you don't want to go any further? Um, you know, again, for people to have agency in, in discussing that, I think makes it actually easier to, to push further. Um, so, you know, some of the work that the True Athlete Project does, which I was kind of mentioning to you earlier, you know, I love around facilitating conversations about values, about identity, about social responsibility, um, and bringing mindfulness, compassion into that environment um, so that we have a much more kind of balanced, humane environment within which to do something that is extraordinarily challenging. Um, but, you know, what a wonderful challenge then within that context to be exploring if you can go faster than anyone's ever gone in a boat before. Yeah, I think, uh, I think it's a prerequisite for stretch is actually support, knowing that someone will catch you and agreeing at what points and um, I'm, I'm thinking of the uh, the old documentary with uh, Vincent and Redgrave where they're all collapsing on the rowing machines and I think it was like one more row and, until it goes black type stuff um, 
and then actually spent a bit of uh, we were talking about Chris Cullen earlier, but we 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 also got to hang out with Dean Macy and uh, in the summer last year, and I remember asking him like, like what separated you, Dean, from everyone else? He said, well, Rusty, if uh, if you asked me to sprint and pull my hamstring now, I could do that for you. I could push myself harder than anyone else could push themselves. I was like, please don't, please don't do it. So yeah, that I'm really fascinated by yeah, how that exploration of what's possible actually for me requires high support. Um, yeah, I agree. And, and I like that question of let's explore what's possible. Let's not fixate on the gold medal. Yeah. Because actually if we explore what's possible, you will optimize every chance possible of getting that gold medal but we can't guarantee that but let's leave this let's agree we're gonna we're gonna walk away from this world at some point having explored what's possible for you I think that's a kind of great framing if you like that will take nothing away from your ability to win medals and give you the best chance of winning them but it's that exploration it's that excitement it's that pushing boundaries I mean arguably when we're kind of competing against others around us all the time we're actually lowering the bar because we're now setting it by that person next to us rather than by what's possible for you, which could be so much higher. So I actually think, you know, again, this, this obsession with winning, it, it's stopping us exploring our potential. That's what's so mad about it. So why would we actually hold ourselves back? Because we so believe that this sort of mantra obsessing about winning is, is the way to go. We've seen it in films, we've seen it in books, we've seen you know, we've seen people kind of chanting it to us who we respect and, and look up to that we can't let go of it, even though it doesn't actually make sense. Yeah, I, um, well, the four minute mile is a case in point, isn't it? People, once the psychological barrier is broken, people go, yeah, I could maybe do that as well. The other thing I was thinking a lot about, which you've kind of reinforced is, you know, we were, I was on a, a, a call the other day and they were talking about, obviously you need to know the wants, needs and motivations of your, of your athletes. I was thinking, how many people actually do? How many people spend that time? You know, maybe the first week is off the water. We wouldn't, you know, we, we may benefit from not getting on the water for the first week and actually going somewhere and actually exploring what it is that, why we, why we row. And as you said, what are our fears? What's the bits that we're worried about? How can we support one another? If this happens, how do we help? Um, and I'm going to go back to you. So at the moment in your... Well, what's winning to you at the moment? What's, I mean, apart from getting through lockdown with a seven and a nine-year-old intact. <laughs> um, well, the book has been uh, a new vehicle, I guess, for me to, uh, to stretch myself, to develop my thinking, to share it publicly, which can feel scary, uh, and actually to connect with a lot of people through that. And so, um, you know, I'm really enjoying that. It's a lovely adventure that has no fixed end point. There is no, this is what has to be done. You know, this is what the gold medal looks like. It's an exploration, it's an adventure uh, and it's exploring what's possible. And, and I'm so, you know, the, the process of, of writing, it was a little torturous as we, as we explained because it was stretching my thinking and challenging me and, you know, made me face contradictions, made me look deeper, think from different angles, talk, talk to other people. Um, and now, you know, I'm really enjoying having these discussions, being able to challenge. Um, and, you know, again, there are, there are lovely people reaching out to me from, you know, from sport coaches, teachers in schools, 
business leaders wanting to have this discussion, wanting to stretch my thinking even, even further and applying the long wing concept of clarifying broader success criteria, having a constant learning mindset and, and prioritizing human connections in everything we do. You know, they're giving me greater insights into how that could work in their worlds and, and support them in, in culture change. Nice, and I actually liked the story you told me about because to write a book has been on my to-do list for, for quite a while. But actually that whole process of you, I think, it was the lady's name, Alison Jones, who you spoke yeah. to and, and actually set yourself a, a, a period of days where you, sounds like you bounced stuff around, you know, you were challenged, you, 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 you compared and looked for difference in what you were thinking, you kind of explored the gaps. I just, I love the idea that you took all this all these experiences, all the stuff that happened with rowing and in the foreign office and at university, and then you try to go, what the hell does it all mean? Like, yeah, how can I simplify yeah. this? How could I make this into something that might be useful to, to other people to help them make sense of stuff? It was a big sense-making process. And initially, I thought, maybe this is my personal reckoning, almost, that I need to do, because I didn't have the opportunity, almost, to make sense of it at the time. But I think, you know, and there are some stories that I wrote down, you know, that aren't in the book, that don't need to be in the book, but that I needed to write about different aspects of, you know, different things that stuck in my mind, different moments. And then to think about, actually, this is a vehicle to some trends that we're seeing to challenges within education and, and children leaving school with loads of A grades, but not actually being equipped for the modern workplace, where I see the leadership deficit uh, because we need people who are creative, who are resilient, who are collaborative, who are innovative. And none of that is being rewarded or, um, you know, really kind of recognized and developed at, at a young age. And again, in sports, seeing, you know, athlete after athlete come out with medals or without medals, feeling empty, feeling depressed, you know, and, and, and worse at times, that, that sort of prevalence of mental health issues over the longer term with many athletes coming out of elite sport. Again, I sort of, we need to understand this and we need to understand that we can do things in a different way. So, you know, I guess it was, there were different layers and that's why it took some time to kind of unpeel the personal story and then think about how is that a useful thread to accessing sort of bigger trends in education, sport, business, politics as well, society around us. And then, you know, to all the background reading, all the finding the research, uh, challenging, you know, my own sort of hypotheses, do, do they really hold up? Um, and, um, you know, getting feedback on all of that. So it was a long old process, but actually that's what kind of has also you know, made it meaningful for me. Um, and enabled me to to kind of pull it together in a way that I hope makes sense for others as well. When were you most challenged? And I'm, I'm going to go on to like some of the success stuff, but also I guess I'm also, there will be some people that go, come on, Kath, come on, seriously. Yeah, this is a bit pink and fluffy. Actually winning is, you know, this is, it's about this. It's a dog eat dog world. These kids need to understand what it's like in the real world. They're not going to get all the jobs they want. They're not going to have all the success. So, you know, we need to we need to prepare them for that. So it's 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 zero sum games all the time. Yeah, I mean that 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 definitely that pink fluffy thing, you know, gets my hackles up. Um, yeah, where is that where is that logic all coming from? Uh, you know, why do the military in one of the toughest jobs out there, why have they changed the way they train soldiers to bring in mindfulness, to support them in very different ways, 
because of their now deeper understanding of managing post-traumatic stress disorder means that we are, we need to, to have different values and identity and opportunity to talk about things and, and, and they need to perform in the harshest environments and they understand the need to change. Again, actually all of the research around athletes is, is showing us that the performance requires support, as you said, to actually push yourself um, and, and explore the boundaries of what's possible. So I just don't see the evidence for it that we have to kind of continue on in this sort of macho way and i guess i then ask who is that serving the people who have done well in in that system in the past the people who are in positions now and and who don't know any different um it's hard to see that serving athletes or um pupils or or kind of sports lovers of the future i don't think it's going to help us to attract talent to retain talent athlete retention is a massive challenge uh, across elite sport at the moment that we know but again you know isn't necessarily being talked about as openly and or as connected to uh, this issue of our obsession with winning that is that is a key part fueling it in in my view um, you know developing those sort of uh, talent pathways for you know in a way that's much more inclusive I think is, is going to be you know it makes sense because those pipelines are not full of children wanting to be in them. So, so again, you know, surely we have to question, what do we actually have to show for it? We, we have, you know, people with medals and mental health issues. So you know, how can we not, if we've got a performance mindset and we're interested in improvement and working out what's possible, then how can we not challenge all of these constructs that have clearly not served us as well as they could have? Yeah, and, and, and I think the flip is, and I'm, I'm imagining you going into uh... Uh, to maybe uh, to Molesford Prep with Henry Weeks. And so what I think I've heard is like um, agreeing and establishing, look, what are what is success for us? Having a mastery mindset and then valuing connection. What would that look like on the ground? Because actually my view is loads of schools have already kind of written on their website as an example and lots of sports. So I had a coach message me from New Zealand today and he said, look, I've got a few problems with the coaches. And I said, well, just, you know, what, what, what have the club agreed to do? What's the stuff that they've... And he sent me it and I said, well, there you go. I mean, they're sharing that stuff widely. Um, so I think they've often got some of that stuff. I think it's then, so how do we do it? And I guess that's where you would fit in. And, and then how do we also create, it, create an environment where it is about mastery and people getting better and feeling supported and challenge? And we're not we're not talking about an environment where stuff's just you know it just comes easy. It's actually a lot of this stuff is about stretching yourself and at the appropriate dosage, and then also. So I'm also curious as to you know why you think the connection piece is is vital as well. I think every athlete you ask, what do they what do they remember? Um, it. I only hear the stories about the kind of incredible connections they have these these kind of moments where things click or in training you, you know you have a break from training and something you know you go do some crazy thing together I mean it's all of those moments of human connection that we talk about in our lives isn't it beyond sport as well um, you know sport exists as a means of connecting people at a very fundamental level of creating communities and whether it's the fans or whether it's um, you know, those, the, the, the sports people themselves, you know, for me, that is why we do sport and we shouldn't lose sight of that. 
Uh, I often think it's strange that, you know, for me watching a match or watching a race, the most important and the most exciting thing is those kind of moments before we know the result. So, you know, the, the, the decision-making, the tactics, the opportunities that come up and the way people respond in different ways. I love that. I think that's why we watch it. And yet then we only talk about the result and the newspapers only record the result. And I never quite understood why we don't then think about, well, you know, wasn't it interesting when, okay, somebody who might have ended up fifth did something else in the race that made it such a great race. But no, we then, we devalue what they did because they came out fifth, so clearly it was a stupid thing to do. But actually it was part of what made a great Olympic final. Why can't we value that? And understanding that, you know, is part of us all being able to um, understand those critical decision-making points much better, to learn more from it, to feel connected to it. Um, so, you know, again, our interpretation of what we see seems to emphasize some of the wrong things. And I think that's what within an environment I, I would like us to shift. So we define success with much broader criteria. And then, if you like, the measuring obsession, we put that onto some other factors. We put it onto what are we learning? What are we improving? Not jumping to the outcomes all the time. So we can actually think on a daily basis, what are the things we've moved on here? You know, how might we understand that we've we've improved our communication wow we're gonna to have to have a really complex discussion on that what does good communication look like it looks different from one person to another you know this isn't easily trackable this isn't on the stopwatch click click but it's so much more meaningful and it's really useful to life afterwards and life around us all the time so you know i'm all i'm very happy for us to be kind of measuring uh, qualitatively, if you like, uh, other aspects that are important to our environments and valuing those. And actually then at the end of the day, you know, recognizing progress in, in those areas um, and that constant evolution, that constant iteration of how we're doing things. So what's working and, you know, what's working less well, rather than this need to defend everything we do. It's okay, we don't need to change things, we've got a result. Like regardless of result, why wouldn't we still improve things? That's the performance mindset that we're expecting the athletes to have. Why can't we have that as coaches? Why can't we have that about the environments we're working in? Um, again, you know, it, that, that's a paradox for me, how a, a, a coach is, is not supported to develop and, and change often. Um, they've, their program must be right. That's why we're employing them because they know what to do. Well, then surely we're not getting the best out of our coaches unless we are also providing those opportunities for them to discuss their why, how they might improve, what they're learning, you know, to be mentored, to be part of um, coach programs that, that give them that opportunity to discuss difficult things. How, how do you bring a compassionate approach when I'm afraid that's going to, you know, somehow... Um, you know, affect performance levels or hang on, let's challenge that myth. Where can we have the safe discussions so that actually as coaches, we can grow and learn and, and understand in a, in a deeper way how to, to have a, a much more effective and sustainable culture. I'm assuming when you come in, people feel a great sense of relief um, and, uh, and also a little bit of kind of, right, this, this is going to be a bit of a journey as well for us. This might be a little bit different. How are you? Uh, how are you dealing with that stuff? Uh, you know, there's there's always a, a range, isn't there? There are some people who are like, you know, oh, thank God, you know, I I knew the stuff all along, and there are some who are sort of like mm, not sure, and and of course there are some who find it really difficult to change because they perhaps have also haven't been exposed to different thinking. Um, that's like all of us, isn't it? We we change at, at, at a different rate. 
and it's then about also thinking about what support we, we each require to to grow in our roles um, with the assumption being we should grow in our roles you know I definitely and I find it hard if there's an assumption that no it's all right thanks I'm, I'm fine I, I, I'm good you know we're winning I'm good leave me alone you know that that for me is is probably the sort of most challenging response to sort of go <laughs> no we, we 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 should all be growing in our roles um and um and if that's you know if we've lost sight of that then um you know we're not we're not in a great place i guess the the benefit for you is people uh, people like that might not be coming to you so that's useful and i guess my last kind of observation is that all of this stuff i think we've just had time to think so covid has probably made us more aware of what is it we value? What's important to us? What gives us joy in life? What doesn't? Um, I'm not missing those 35,000 extra car miles. You said you're missing a little bit of the travel because actually that's really helpful for you. And I, I think there's a, an appropriate dosage for us. Um, so I guess it's, uh, yeah, it's fascinating times. I guess the Olympics being postponed, your book coming out, and then, you know, the, the Olympics being perhaps being next year, but also generally people are, you know, we're, we're lacking the connection. We're lacking the, you know, the three-dimensional version of another human being and the interactions and the micro gestures and seeing someone's back for 2,000 metres. And, and is that something you've noticed that people have just become more aware of this stuff? Absolutely. It's been a massive help, actually, things that I think I was trying to uh, ask people to, to, to consider in a hypothetical way, you know, what if you valued connection more? What, what might we do differently? Or, you know, what, what if it's not about the medals this year? What might you do differently? That, that felt incredibly difficult and very hypothetical. You know, my hypothetical questions have now become real. There is no Olympics this year. So how will you redefine success to ensure that you take lots of positives and grow as an individual athlete or coach in this year? You know, again, you know, in business world, you know, you're, you're not going to achieve the targets you set out. How will you, um, you know, redefine and, and learn something that will help you for, for 2021? And, you know, absolutely, what, what does good connection look like? And my God, what, how do we suffer if we don't have it? So, you know, it's been... A, a challenging experience for all of us and, and some of us you know have, have had enormous loss and, and challenges throughout it but it's actually also been an incredible learning opportunity to challenge us to reevaluate what matters and the challenge is now to to keep those learnings um stay true to them and and, and take that opportunity to to shift uh what matters I agree. Keeping the learnings is going to be interesting when the hamster wheel returns, perhaps um, in, uh, well, who knows, maybe in 2021, we shall see. Uh, if people want to reach out and find you, where, where's the best places to look, Kath? Sure. So I have a website, kathbishop.com. I'm on Twitter at the Kath Bishop. I'm on LinkedIn. So yeah, please do. Please reach out. I'd love to have a chat. And one of the things I'm really enjoying from, from the book actually is the opportunity to connect to all sorts of different people in, in different parts of sport and beyond and uh, really enjoying the kind of opportunity to continue the conversation around um, success and high performance. Nice. Well, well done for writing a book about stuff that's really important to me. One day, maybe I'll write one and, 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 and this will be a page of it. So, uh, look, have an awesome day. Thank you so much again and uh, we'll speak soon. Thanks. Really appreciate coming on. Thanks a lot.